Hello, everybody, and welcome to the PX3 interview. We got a good one for you today. Mark Zitter, he is with the Zetima Project. We're going to talk all about healthcare, why it's so complicated in the United States, why uh, it got there, the solutions that we've tried, the political fault lines uh, under which people argue about it, and whether or not it's ever going to get better. And then at the end, I get really into like the robot stuff. I just want to know if robots are going to solve it because that's that's the big question now. Something seems really complicated. You just see whether or not we can throw it in the cloud and it'll sort itself out. Anyway, before we get started, let me remind you guys that you can support this show by going to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. That is where you can join the $3 club. That means you get not one, not two, because we've been doing two podcasts a week for the last couple months here, an interview show and our regular PX3 Prime One Mic show. But you can also get one on Monday, one on Friday. That is four podcasts a week. Never be without some political dialogue in your ears. Head on over there. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. But what do you say we get into our interview? Politics, 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 politics. Our guest today is Mark Zitter. He is the chair of the Zetima Project, a nonpartisan group of healthcare industry and policy leaders that meets regularly to debate key U.S. healthcare issues. Mark, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. All right. So, healthcare is obviously something that has been a major issue in American politics for uh, decades, to say the least. Why is it so complicated? Hmm. Well, we've made it plenty complicated in the United States. Clearly, it's not only complicated, but it's important, right? Health is something that we tend to take for granted when we have it, but when we don't have it, it's hard to think about anything else. And that's where healthcare comes in. Uh, in the United States, healthcare started differently from in most uh, healthcare insurance that it start differently from most countries. Where back around the Second World War, when there was a wage freeze. Employers figured that they could actually differentially recruit employees, not by offering higher wages. That was illegal to change at that point, but they could add health care benefits. So they did. So we started out uh, early on with health care coverage going through uh, through the employer uh, for most working age Americans. And that's unusual in the world. And that's how we've ended up with a much more multi-payer system uh, than many, many countries have. So really, that's the basis of the complexity. And so th this was uh, 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 the, the, the wage free, uh, freeze uh, because of the uh, Great Depression or, or World War II? Because of World War II. World War II. Gotcha. Uh, so this was really the, 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 the perk war. <laughs> yeah, this was, I mean, much like we've got a scene out here in Silicon Valley. We can't pay you more, so we will give you more, more uh, health. We'll give you health benefits. And that That's really just started now. Yeah. 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 That, that, so, so that's clearly a lot of our complexity is that we've got so many uh, so many things going on in terms of so many different payers. Now you got something for for people who are lower income. You got something for people who are older. You got you got uh, the, the affordable care marketplaces as well as the employer piece. But the second piece that's complicated about healthcare, and there's really not a great way around it. If you, if you think about it, most things that we buy, we go to 
a seller and we buy it. And it's pretty simple. And if you don't like the price, you go somewhere else and that caused the sellers to keep their price down and the quality up and so forth. And of course, in healthcare, it doesn't quite work that way because we have health insurers in between. And it's hard to figure out how we would do without health insurers because it's so expensive. But what that means is often we're not spending our money. We're spending someone else's money. Uh, the seller doesn't have that direct relationship with the buyer. So there's not as much incentive to be lower cost or to be simpler or whatever it may be. And that adds to the complexity a lot as well. It, it seems like there's also kind of two things that are sort of put together that don't necessarily need to where what we mostly are worried about is catastrophic uh, health costs, right? That, that in general, going to a checkup, getting your teeth clean, stuff like that, they are at least routine enough. And in general, there are enough practitioners of it that you could shop around if you wanted. Uh, mostly health insurance, I think in, in my mind and in, in the mind of many people, is there for in case you get into a car accident or you have some kind of illness. Exactly, exactly. There's a real, uh, there's a real difference uh, between those things. Because when you think about it, like I have home insurance. I hope I never, ever use it, right? But healthcare insurance, we like to use when we want to go to the doctor for something. I don't mean that we want to get sick, but, but certainly when we are sick, we want to use it. And certainly even when we're not, we want to have a checkup or something else taken care of, we want to use it. So yes, we did combine those things and we've gotten a bit, you might say a bit, a bit spoiled with that. Uh, but of course, nowadays, what's really different over the last decade is we used to have to go to, we, have, we used to usually use health insurance and it would pay for the very first dollar. You don't have to pay much of anything. You might have to pay a premium, which was usually taken out of your paycheck. But after that, you went to the doctor, you didn't pay much of anything. Then you'd pay five or $10 or something small. Now the average deductible for Americans is well over $1,000. So we're spending some significant out-of-pocket dollars, not only each time we go, but sometimes we pay for all of our health care until we hit a certain level. And that's new, so it doesn't feel as much the, the way it used to where, where everything was paid for for us. So the, the, the deal has gotten different between us as the consumer and the insurance companies. The insurance companies, of course, the government is the payer for an awful lot of people in America, too. Yeah. The single largest payer in America is Medicaid, you know, which is a joint federal state uh, program. And most Americans now know someone on Medicaid because not only is it for low-income people, but Medicaid also pays for about half of all the long-term care sort of nursing home stays. And a lot of us have uh, elder, older relatives who never used Medicaid when they were working or earlier on, but just can't afford the kind of money it costs to take care of somebody for a couple of years in a nursing home. So it seems like our, our big complications are we are tied to our health insurance because of our employers. And this sprung up out of a you know necessity oh so many years ago that insurance is something that is kind of all defining, which doesn't necessarily lend itself to having the prices drop and that we are seeing a, a less, at least from our perspective as consumers, rosy deal between uh, uh, you know, how the system is working for us as time goes on. Correct. And since this is a politics podcast, indeed, I will add that on the political side, the complexity boils down to something very simple but very big, which is that we collectively want to consume more healthcare services and products than we collectively say we want to pay for. And again, typically, if you're just buying a, a restaurant meal or an iPod or something like that, you know, you make that choice. You just you pay for it or you don't. If it's too expensive, you don't yeah. pay for it. But for healthcare, since we are not directly making those choices most of the time, uh, that, that market force doesn't really work. So everybody wants healthcare to be less expensive, and everybody wants to get a lot of it. 
And nobody really kind of wants to connect those and say, here's the hard choices that we or that I should be making as a result of that. And that's what makes it politically very complex. Well, let's talk about the politics then. So the Affordable Care Act, uh, which we can probably just refer to as Obamacare, because that is what was referred Mm -hmm. to by the creators. uh, How did they look to solve these problems? Well, I think this is a number of problems. And you might say the problems are access, meaning that people have coverage for care. Uh, You might say another big issue is it's too expensive overall. You might say there's quality issues. You might say there's equity issues. There's a number of different ones. The Affordable Care Act really, number one, uh, first and foremost, tackled the coverage piece. Because as people, I think, are pretty aware, uh, the United States was, and still is, but particularly was before the Affordable Care Act, the, 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 the wealthy country, the only OECD country that didn't cover pretty much all of its population. And they wanted to make a debt in that. And that's a place where clearly the Affordable Care Act has dramatically reduced the percentage of our population who don't have any coverage. That was good. The affordable piece, um, you can argue, has worked in some ways and not as well in other ways. Certainly since it was implemented, we've seen a decrease in the, the rate of the growth in healthcare spending. And some people say it's attributable to that, and some pe- people on the, on the left do, and some people on the right say it, it doesn't. But clearly, healthcare cost increases are down since the implementation of the act, which is a good thing, but they're still really, really high. And as most people know, the United States is not just more expensive than other countries, but much more expensive. So those are two of the main things they tackled. There was also a quality piece, uh, and it's harder to, to, to determine how much that has impacted uh, healthcare quality. But frankly, though everybody in America is in favor of good healthcare quality, there's not a lot of political energy behind saying, wow, our healthcare quality is lousy and we got to improve it. There's much more about costs and, and access. So yeah, th- those are the two big things. It's just like, you can say that you won by saying more people are covered and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, I guess that that's, that's the biggest thing, right? <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, thing. You yeah. Were, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you were, you were taking away the, the, you know, a group of people that could not afford it before. Mm-hmm. Now, how it did, did they have access ha- to it for a variety of reasons? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, how did they look to solve it? Because I think a lot of people kind of hear buzzwords like marketplaces and, and, and stuff like that. And I, I don't feel like there there is a, a tremendous wholesale understanding of exactly what that means. Other than at some point I go to a website and it's complicated. And maybe if I ping around enough, I get health care. Yeah, the marketplaces uh, got the most um, ink, uh, uh, publicity about the whole thing, but they weren't the biggest part. Remember, there were sort of three main pieces. That There's lots of pieces, but three main pieces. And one was Medicaid was expanded. In California, we call it Medi-Cal, but it's Medicaid nationally. And that's the program for uh, primarily for lower-income people and people with certain types of disabilities and so forth. And that was expanded because the government paid initially all and, and then dropping to 90% of the uh, funds it would take for a state to expand its Medicaid coverage. And that's the part that got really political. If you remember, the red states uh, pretty much universally refused to expand their Medicaid coverage, even though they could get it for pretty much for free yeah. in the short term. Um, and since then, a number have expanded, both because um, they've just decided to, but sometimes because the, the public, uh, the population has actually voted for it, which happened in the last election in a number of red states. So there's the Medicaid expansion. There were the marketplaces which serve between 10 and 15 million Americans, um, you know, out of 330 million or something. That's a material piece, but not huge. And then everybody in the country, regardless of kind of insurance, got some benefits. The most popular ones are the uh, not allowing uh, insurers to prevent you from getting care 
due to a pre-existing condition or sure. to charge you more for a pre-existing condition. Huge one. And, of course, another popular one is allowing uh, children to stay on their, on their parents' health plans until age 26. So that was even for people who already had insurance. Those are the three main ways that they expanded coverage. Okay. And it was ar- inarguably quite effective. Oh, absolutely, and certainly even uh, you know the the pre-existing conditions and the uh, you know parents' insurance until you're 26 are things that have gained bipartisan traction, which would seem impossible, uh, specifically in the heyday of when we were debating Obamacare. Uh, but I, I do want to double back a little bit back to the marketplaces, just because uh, I, I I want to give people a better understanding of exactly what those are. What are these marketplaces? These marketplaces are, uh, they are insurance opportunities that are aimed at people who weren't covered by their employers for whatever reason they were unemployed or they had employers who didn't have uh, health plans or, uh, you know, and, and weren't old enough for Medicare, which typically starts at age 65, or low income enough for Medicaid, which eligibility uh, criteria vary by state, or disabled in some way that would qualify them. So we had a bunch of people who were un- uninsured. And they created brand new marketplaces where the government had particular uh, rules about what types of plans could and couldn't be offered and the essential benefits that had to be included. Actually, the essential benefit piece cut across. So it went beyond the marketplaces. And, and, and uh, um, that way set some things up. And another critical piece that most insurers would say was initially, at least the government mandated that you had to have insurance or you paid a fine. And that was important to insurers because they worry that if there's not a rule that you have to get health insurance, then if you're healthy, you won't sign up for it. You'll only sign up if you're sick, and they're going to have very high costs. So the government put all that together and invited private insurers to uh, uh, introduce new uh, products, which uh, they did in most parts of the country. All right. Now, let's look forward. because And by the way, I would love to talk more about uh, uh, Republican concepts for uh, health reform or health care. But, you know, based on my understanding of modern politics – this, this tends to be a liberal issue. This tends to be a democratic issue that uh, there is more of a, a more time spent talking about why the liberal ideas are bad than there necessarily are conservative concepts for how to reform it. Is there anything that I'm missing before we move on to another liberal idea in Medicare for all? Well, I would credit uh, the Republican, you know, former governor Mitt Romney uh, for what he did in Massachusetts, which which really turned out to be the template for the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, uh, I think there was a lot of news about that previously. So there, and in fact, many people claim that that the template for Romney Care came out of the Heritage Foundation, a conservative think tank. So it's already a, a you know a market based approach, and you can look at it worldwide. We have one of the most market based healthcare systems that's available. I think that when I talk to people on the right about some of their ideas for healthcare, and you're right, there really hasn't been really the level of sort of detailed plans that have been presented from the right, but they do believe very much in 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 market based solutions. Uh, as opposed to more regulatory solutions. And in fact, some of the people I know on the right say, you know, we actually, in, in certain respects, have to have more regulation to create better marketplaces so that market forces will will apply more. All right. So let, some of the political theory on the right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we'll, we'll actually get to a few, uh, I think, we'll probably circle back to, to a few of those ideas uh, after we talk about Medicare for All. But let's talk about Medicare for All, because it's getting a lot of ink okay. now. This is something that uh, uh, Bernie Sanders has uh, made a center uh, piece of his campaign in 2020. You've seen insurgent Democrats like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez certainly uh, uh, trumpet it. What would, I mean, do we know what Medicare for All would be beyond 
uh, you know, are there are there core tenants that people would need to know immediately when that is said? Well, certainly, uh, yes. And in fact, it's, it's often one of the things that's most confusing, or I think most misunderstood about Medicare for all, which is in most of its forms of a form of single payer healthcare, and that is that those that single payer healthcare is often conflated with universal coverage. So thought of as the same thing, and they're not. You could have single payer healthcare without universal coverage, and you certainly can have universal coverage without single payer healthcare, as they do in many of the countries around the world. And the reason that's important is because I think many people, when they hear someone is opposed to Medicare for all, think they don't think everyone should have healthcare coverage. And that is uh, by and large incorrect. Most of the people that I know, the experts, as well as the polls, show that, that most Americans believe everybody should have coverage. Yeah. Pretty much everybody, at least. You can, you can argue about the undocumented, but that's, let's put that off to the side. Uh, but a lot of those people, including a lot of people on the left, don't believe that single payer is the best way to get there. So let's make sure we're just distinguishing. You can be completely opposed to Medicare for all, completely opposed to single payer, and completely in favor of universal coverage, having everyone covered. There's not as much disagreement on the universal coverage side. Now, Medicare for all, turns out, has a number of different definitions, which can mean single payer. It could literally mean you take the Medicare program as we know it, and instead of making it available just to people over 65 and who are, have certain disabilities, you say all Americans now have it. Then you got Medicare, truly Medicare for all. Uh, there's many different flavors of it. Some say, well, uh, why should we, uh, if people are happy with their employer-based insurance, why take that away? Why don't we just make it, make it Medicare for some or for most or for anybody who wants it and make it voluntary? And those are some of the pieces too. And of course, the people who are most likely to be both lacking health coverage and needing it currently today are those who are between 55 and 64, not old enough to qualify for Medicare, but uh, may not have uh, access through their employer, and of course, at that age, are more likely to need it than a 25-year-old. Okay, so uh, let, let, me, let, let me go back real quick to the difference between universal coverage and single payer. So when you say universal yes. coverage, does that mean that everybody would have health insurance by some means or that everybody yes. should be yes. offered a, a, a gov some government-run option of health insurance? Well, universal coverage really just means everybody has coverage, and that can come in any number of ways. So that could be all through the government. It could be not at all through the, none through the government. It could be a sum of each. The most, I mean, just for example, the most obvious way we could do that quickly in America if we wanted to is we could expand the Affordable Care Act so that uh, all the states would have the Medicaid expansion rather than just the ones that opt for it, mm -hmm. and that you'd, you'd increase the subsidies for uh, the marketplaces and reinstitute, reinstitute the mandate, and then everybody would have coverage. I'm not saying that's the best way or the only way to do it, but that's why you'd have universal coverage, which would not look at all like single payer. So here comes the the one big tricky thing. This is really where I think the lightning rod happens when it, when we start talking about single payer, and it's something that to mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders's credit, and I think it's why his his uh, followers have responded because he says with no nonsense that single payer does stand in opposition, at least on some level, to private health insurance. Uh, w what are the, the the lines of engagement there? Like, can you have a single payer? system when you continue to have private health insurance? Well, you can certainly have private health insurance companies, and many countries do. Uh, for you, know, you, you may want the government to be the single payer, meaning you collect money, let's say, in terms of taxes, 
And then the gov- all the money that's going into the health system comes from the government. But you may not want to have the government administering it all, uh, as many countries don't. So they prefer to have private insurers, which may be for profit, maybe not for profit, and say, here's some money, administer it. In fact, that's what we do currently with the Medicare system. The, the government doesn't serve as the insurance company or it, it doesn't do the administrative paperwork for Medicare. They have a fiscal intermediaries, they call them, which typically are some of the big insurance companies you may know of or some of their subsidiaries. And of course, one third of Medicare beneficiaries are in what they call managed Medicare and our Medicare Advantage is the technical term. And uh, they're getting money through private insurers, but it's paid for by Medicare. So, okay, so there's a, uh, what, 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 but those insurance companies are not going out and soliciting the money from, say, an employer or individual uh, to be able to pay it. They're getting the money through the government. Through the government. So, so Medicare is a yeah. pile of money, and then that pile of money gets paid out to whatever vendors that the 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 person who wants the care wants to give it to. Right, right. Which doctors, which hospitals, and we'll collect the money. You know, if there's a co-payment, they'll collect that. We don't have government employees for the most part doing that. We've got private insurance companies yeah. doing that. Both I guess for like, except for like VAs or something like that. Like that would be a government yeah, run. Yeah, VAs different. Yeah, yeah. yeah VAs a fully government owned system, and that's about ten million lives or something like that that, that most typically cover. I believe. All right, so let's get into some of the some of the market <laughs> stuff because the one thing that. I always kind of found as a bit of a head scratcher uh, with the Obamacare solution, with, with the ACA solution, was that to me, it didn't get to the heart of, I think, why at least there's a lot of complaints about insurance companies. Specifically, they don't tend to compete with each other all that much. The prices don't seem to be reactive to things getting cheaper or more available or more generic. Uh, so the, the idea that they were, you know, put into a marketplace, it it almost seemed like it was sort of enshrining an oligopoly of companies that already Mm -hmm. are kind of seen to be as bad actors by a lot of their customers. Uh, is that, is that a bad reading for me? Well, I'm not sure it's entirely fair. I mean, I'm not going to be one to say, Hey, insurance companies are wonderful. Love them all. Sure. I do think that the system is set up. So people are going to dislike them. Here's companies that they're given money to put in a pool. And it's supposed to cover as much of the population as appropriately as possible. And if they, if everything goes as, as expected, they don't get any appreciation. It's only when they say no or do something wrong that they get criticized. And very often that criticism is entirely justified, entirely justified. And uh, clearly uh, they don't have really an incentive to typically to pay very quickly for things, right? Why not hang on to the money? But, but, they also are, are serving very often a useful function, and they do fraud and abuse prevention. And frankly, uh, one of the challenges we see in medical management is that a lot of care that is delivered isn't appropriate, shouldn't, is, is, could even be bad for people. And insurance companies try to get in, in, the, in the middle of that. And of course, that's going to be unpopular. Not the main thing they do. But uh, I, I think, you know, the, the way we have things set up and the way it does work in some other countries is if you have a competitive insurance market, you can drive prices down. And we have seen that in a number of places. The, 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 the best example, perhaps, is, is Medicare Part D, which is the drug benefit, which unlike most uh, healthcare, what we think about the healthcare system, you know, first of all, it was introduced by a Republican president, uh, George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And it is in the last 10 years or plus that it's been in existence has consistently come in below uh, cost estimates. And it's at a very high level of uh, satisfaction. It's really been a success story. And it's completely a competitive marketplace that was set up by the government with private insurers getting in there and being able to drive deeper discounts than anybody thought they would. 
So that was an example where we've been able to make private sector competition work in U.S. healthcare. We don't always make it work, but there we did. Here's the the, the biggest thing that has, has, to me, always seemed odd, is that there seems like the profit motivation between hospitals and doctors on one side and health insurance on the other is incentivized toward both of them driving the price as high as they can because the doctors know that the insurance companies are going to nickel and dime them. The insurance companies, like you said before, don't want to be charged for anything that might be fraudulent or not necessary. So they play as big of a hardball as 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 they can. And and that's where it seems like when when you see the the the, the crazy bills for for health insurance, that it seems like that is artificially high because the profit motivation is so fierce. Uh, mm-hmm. Does that make is is that a real thing or am I making that up in my head? Yeah, I just I think you put your finger on something very important. I would just change it a little bit and call it the revenue motive rather than the profit motive because the majority of hospitals in the U.S. are not for profit. A lot of the insurance companies, the blues, tend to be not for profit. We don't see a huge difference on average between the for-profit and the not-for-profit because they all okay. have to generate revenue to survive. Sure, so, of course. But yeah. there is a bias, a huge bias in our system towards getting more revenue, and that drives costs and prices up. Because that, that was the one thing that I, I really – I actually admired about a system like Kaiser but when I before I moved to California, and then I was happy to get it when I got here – is that the the idea there is that the health insurance owns the hospitals and the doctor's offices that by and large specifically you're going to your going to for your primary care and even for your catastrophic care you can you can deal with them is that th- that concept at the very least would eliminate the 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 revenue gulf there that that because they would know the health insurance would know exactly what the cost was and and that would be able to just be passed on in a little bit more of a straightforward manner uh do, do you see mm-hmm. stuff like that with with systems that are combined like that well the fact is there's very few systems that are as, as combined as as closely as kaiser in that regard and that, that and a, a lot of health policy people would say hey if we could just do kaiser all over the country we'd be better off and I think there's a lot of reason you could argue that it's it's interesting that kaiser has tried to go all over the country with very limited success it's very hard to start that model somewhere else at this point, anyway, and they've been trying for a long time with a lot of smart people on that. But you're right that the integration, I think, is a uh, is is a bright light or a, or a direction for us to head in. And now we're trying to do it without full blown Kaiser and everybody owning the same thing. But the main direction we're trying to head in is to integrate the responsibility for caring for a population with the pool of dollars, rather than having the pool of dollars in one place and it pays a bunch of other people to take care of care. You can imagine if we give a big health system like a Kaiser or like just a big hospital in an area, the responsibility for that entire population, and you pay them a, a, a fair price to care for that population for a year, each year, and uh, you say, hey, this is all you're going to get, so do it efficiently. Uh, most experts believe would be a, they would be a lot more efficient if they had that level of certainty and that l- level of incentive. So we're gradually, glacially moving in that direction. <laughs> all right. So, so looking forward... One thing that certainly has happened over the last 50 years is that, uh, uh, you know, drugs that have been life saving have become generic. Uh, uh, there there have like in any uh, field, technology has continued to make things uh, uh, more effective and in some places cheaper. Is there anything that that, uh, uh, you know, virtualization or 
uh, technological advancements could drive healthcare costs down even further going from here? Is there anything that we're do, do, do you expect as a as somebody who's watching this market to see a disruption in the way that other fields have seen a disruption with technology? Uh, no. In a word, no. It doesn't mean there won't be any change, but I don't think we'll see anything revolutionary. And that is partly because, and it's a really important thing, particularly from a political perspective. You know, I think most people know we spend a lot of money on healthcare. It's 18% of our economy. It's about nine, it's more than 9% of our total employment. Uh, the, the, the percent we spend is much higher than any other country. Okay, we got that. The, the only good news I can take out of that is that pretty much all that money is paid to Americans. It doesn't go overseas, doesn't go somewhere else. It goes to American jobs and American uh, products and so forth. I'm not justifying it, but I, I am using that as an explanation as one of the reasons it's so hard to change the system is if we want to change the system and we want to save money, it's going to take money away from income for Americans. And that is widely distributed. There is a hospital in every single congressional district in America. In fact, in some of them, it's the largest employer. So it's one of the reasons it's really hard to think about changing the system dramatically is that there's so many people who would push back if they like where they are from the receiving part of, of healthcare uh, spent. So I think that's a, that's a challenge that we're going to have to uh, live with when we're trying to do something along the way. So nothing like like virtual doctors or you know let me just uh, uh, you know uh, consult with my AI instead of my general practitioner. <laughs> I think we will absolutely see more of that. Again, slowly, yeah. slowly. Telemedicine definitely has promise for us, and there's some regulations that get in the way of that partly. Um, there's some evidence that, uh, you know, AI robots can be uh, as good uh, psychotherapists helping with mental health as, 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 as real humans. In fact, there's some evidence that, that, that many people would prefer to tell their deepest, darkest secrets to a robot, believe it or not. So there's lots of interesting things we'll see happening um, along the way. I really think it's around the edges when you look at what the true costs are and that people tend to want to have hands-on healing um, and, 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 and face-to-face interactions more than anything else when it comes to feeling sick. And when you look at the, 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 the disproportionate number of costs, you know, about 5% of all, of all the, the entire population account for 50% of the healthcare costs, these people are pretty sick. And usually a, a, a telemedicine visit isn't going to do the trick for them. So it's harder to figure out how to apply technology to dramatically drop costs as we have in some fields, the same way that we, we would hope to do in healthcare. One last technology question. Uh, we've seen rumblings over the last two years that a comp- that companies, and, and I'm going to use Amazon as the example because they seem to be the most active in it, have looked to get into, at the very least, prescription drug you know, purchase and delivery. They've, they've, I think they bought another company. They're working with, uh, uh, you know, health, health insurance providers. Is that, uh, how much money, I guess, baseline, how much money is spent on prescription drugs and would a company like Amazon, are they just going to be another player or could that be, uh, you know, a, a way to drive down costs of these drugs? Yeah, I think the answer is slightly, but most people, if you ask them, Hey, take a guess. What percentage of all American healthcare spending is in is in prescription drugs, the retail stuff you get to the, at the pharmacy or through the mail? And they would guess some very high numbers, and the actual number is 10%. Wow. 10%. In fact, uh, the, the latest that we had, the, the government figures from 2017, that's the latest we got, uh, retail drugs are 10% of total spend, and the increase in 2017 was 0.4%. Okay? You compare that to hospitals, which are 33% of total spend, and was up 4.6% that year. So drugs are an, an issue. There's no question about it. 
Um, that retail number doesn't include some of the uh, highly specialized drugs that you'll get in the hospital or in a, have to be administered in a doctor's office. And those are some additional couple percentage points that are growing uh, faster than we'd like. And those are the really big price drugs that are used by a fairly small percentage of the population. But all, all, all that being said, you know, Amazon's playing uh, only in the retail side, that, that 10%, that's only a 0.4%. And they're, of course, not really affecting the price of drugs. They're talking about delivery costs. Yeah. And, and Amazon may well be able to reduce those, but you're talking about a tiny fraction of, of the 10%. Uh, what I would say is your listeners will not notice what Amazon's able to do <laughs> to reduce prices. Too small yeah. a number. But Amazon will. Cha-ching. Amazon will. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Really what it comes down to, and here's why, this is, here's why it's really hard. You know, when you look at uh, U.S. compared to other countries, yes, we're more expensive dramatically. If you yeah. look at other similar countries, European countries or whatever, similar economies and so forth, and yes, uh, we have higher administrative costs because of the multiplayer complexity. And yes, we have some higher drug costs, too, and all those things. But the real difference in cost, the big, some of the biggest difference in costs are uh, – our prices on hospitals, which are 33% of the total, and doctors and professional services, which are 20%, are much higher. So if I could wave a magic wand and say what's the biggest, the, 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 the biggest things I could do, if I'm just going to do one or two things, I, I, I could change the prices that we pay hospitals and doctors fairly dramatically, like dropping 40%. How do you think my wife is a doctor or you know, people who work in the hospital field would like that? How would they deal with that? It, it's just not politically feasible. So yeah. it, it, you can say one thing about what we should do. If you think we should do that, great. Are we going to do it? Not going to happen anytime soon. Because you're taking money out of the paychecks and food off the tables of doctors and nurses and orderlies around the country. What's the right number to pay a doctor? I mean, it's not, I don't have any easy answer to that question. You know, I can tell you the right number, number uh, amount to pay. I don't know. The, the, someone who runs a hotel, that's a market-based rate, right? Yeah. The hotel makes enough money to pay X amount, right? But we don't set the rates based on markets for doctors. We set them somewhat arbitrarily. Uh, there's some, a little more uh, relevance to them now, but but it's still, you know, the rates are set. That's what we pay. Medicare pays less than private insurers do, for example. Medicaid usually pays less than either of them. But whatever they are, um, I, I'm not going to be the one to say a surgeon should make X amount and an ophthalmologist should make Y amount. Um, but the, but I will say that those people make much more in America than they do in other countries. Yeah, and that's and that's ultimately, (laughs) yeah, and that's and that's you know the the uh, part of the rallying cry of the right whenever uh, things tend to take a more collectivist uh, uh, point or uh, you know bent is is like oh well you know now you're just going to make doctors slaves you know by by restricting it and and while that is certainly hyperbolic, there there is a truth to the idea that okay well then then if we are going to make a command and control decision theoretically. Then you're right. How much does it cost? How much? How much yeah. is? How much is a healer worth? Yes, and the doctors I know work really hard. They're very smart. They care a lot. They do really important work. I wouldn't want to be the guy saying, "Hey, you guys should make less money." <laughs> yeah, but this is where it comes down to: we want to consume more healthcare than we want to pay for. What don't we want to do? What do we, what what kind of sacrifice do we want to make, and who should make them? And you can imagine that's a, quite a political food fight, regardless of your ideology. That's a political food fight. Well. I'm very glad that we had some food for thought on this particular subject. My guest has been Mark Zitter of the Zetima Project, a nonpartisan group of healthcare industry and policy leaders that meet regularly to debate key U.S. healthcare issues. Uh, Mark, this has been awesome. Uh, uh, if people wanted to follow uh, you or anything with the Zetima Project, where can they do it? 
They can do it at zetemaproject.org. That's Z-E-T-E-M-A project.org. And Justin, it's been a pleasure. you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>